I would like to uh, welcome everyone to this uh, series again. We are going to have a, a tough conversation, like always, uh, but I hope it is uh, uh, fruitful again. Um, my name is Giza Magendane, and it has been a pleasure to be your host for the previous uh, sessions in this series on the decolonization of aid. Today, we will focus on the role of the donor. In a way, we have been talking about the donor in the previous sessions, directly or indirectly, because at some hand, at somehow, I think we assume that uh, in order to realize decolonization in international development, uh, the, the role of the donor is preconditional because we've been talking about money, uh, yeah, without realizing it or obviously. So decolonization is also about ownership of public goods and funding. That's one of the lessons that we have learned. Uh, so today we will focus on power and decision-making. And uh, also uh, we'll discuss concepts, concepts such as localization. So as you, as you notice, talking about the donor, it has an interlinkage with uh, the previous session. I'm really honored to have really a special guest uh, with us today. Uh, we have uh, Professor Dirkian Koch, uh, who is a professor of international aid and trade at the Radboud University in Nijmegen, and uh, uh, Smuti Patel, who is founder and director of the Global Mentoring Initiative. Smuti Patel, the floor is yours. Thank you, thank you. And uh, it's a real honor to be here. And I've been part of listening to the dialogue up to now. So, um, and they've been really rich. And uh, just to take up your question earlier about, is it just intellectual? Actually, I think dialogue helps to open people's minds, their hearts and the will to change, right? So it's really, really important to engage and to listen deeply. Um, and to then reflect, as uh, Thea was saying. So I hope that this one also helps to reflect on some of the, the practices um, and things that we, we do. Um, I think one of the things I want to talk about, and Thea talked about this, who are the donors? Well, actually, donors, even um, she talked about the back donors, but actually, whose money is it? It's people's money. It's the population, the taxpayers, whoever, uh, or even individual donors. So donors are people. <laughs> and it's really about how we are using that money uh, to help people. And uh, normally when I hear why, um, you know, donors are there and the money is there, is for solidarity. And for me, it's about how do we show up with that solidarity? Uh, how are we ensuring that we are working in the right way that really helps people? And I think that's the key issue in terms of who are the donors. Um, okay, so one of the things I want to talk about are the institutional donors. This means the governments who are contributing, uh, the Netherlands, um, the UK, all the different governments who are contributing. And what I would like to focus on is um, how fit are they to deal with the current and future challenges uh, so that we are able to help um, wherever it's needed. 
uh, in different parts of the world, uh, particularly the global south. And at the moment, um, you know, hats off to them because there are many, many challenges. You talk about, you know, what's happening in Afghanistan, in, in DRC. We know that it's huge climate crisis. So there's, there are many, many things that are happening and we need to make sure that whatever we, whichever way we go forward, that they are fit for that. And I think uh, what I would like to focus on is how are we ensuring the, the funds and the, uh, you know, the, the support we are giving is done in a way that's really helping people. I think at the moment, the way the system is working is very colonial with colonial mindsets. Uh, we've already heard this from the other dialogue. And what I mean by that really is about, you know, how we're exercising power and control. So the power and control of the funding, for example, who makes the decisions? Um, and that's at the key, at the heart of decolonization, right? Um, the, the funds are raised in the name of populations in crisis, yet do they have the ability and agency to decide how those things are spent? At the moment, no. So how can we make sure that the system is fit for the future in terms of populations being able to exercise their agency in what they need. Um, I would say, you know, donors are going, doing a great job in putting some of the key issues at the center. So for example, gender equity, um, looking at inclusion, diversity, all of these things are kind of the things they're encouraging um, organizations to do. To, to make sure that it's in, you know, included in, in the response. But when you look at how the system itself, the age system, it's very patriarchal. So if the system is patriarchal, there's a, there's a, I think there's a real contradiction. On one hand, you, will, you are providing funding and everything to make sure that there's gender equity, there's inclusion and, and um, making sure that you know we we are really accountable, but on the other hand, the system itself is not accountable. It's not um, inclusive, right? So I just want to go back to what Thea was saying earlier about those negative narratives, right? So there's a trust deficit. We trust our own. That means we exclude the others who are our own. They look like us. Are they white? <laughs> Do we distrust the black and the brown, right? So there are a lot of different things that are coming in. For example, the racism, the prejudice, the judgment. And all of these are playing into uh, the way we operate, right? The, the way we exercise our power. And I think the donors can do a lot. So I'm now I'm talking about the institutional donors, but also the foundations and the individuals who are part of this system. So for example, the taxpayers can also really have a say on why and how this could be changed. Um, again, at present, um, international NGOs who are operating, they get funding from the, from the back donors, as they are saying. 
but how are they actually exercising their power um, and how they are working with the local and national organizations? Are they being inclusive? Are they, is there gender equity? Are they working in decolonized approach? And how can the donors, the back donors encourage that? Because there is a, a lot of money and funding that's going to those organizations, the UN system, the INGOs and others. So how can they encourage those organizations to, to work in a more equitable way? Then I want to focus on two things. One is um, their internal structures. So the donor administrations themselves, their staff, are they reflecting their behaviors and attitudes to make sure they are open-minded, that they're not have this deficit thinking and negative narratives about local actors, that they're corrupt, they're, you know, don't have capacity and all this because do the donor administration have the capacity to engage, really engage uh, for the purpose of aid? It's not just about the funding, right? It's really more than that, it's deeper than that. Some of the root causes um, also. If you look at uh, the way the countries are operating right now, the neo-colonial trade policies are continuing to cause some of these deep-rooted issues in the societies in the global south. Uh, extractive industries, talking about the way the trade is happening, which is unequal, it's, it, it's really increasing some of these inequities. So how are donors showing up <laughs> in different ways, right? On one hand, you know, they are, um, they are, they are funding the war machine, right? The arms and everything. And on the other hand, they're providing aid. So again, that's also causing some of the, uh, the problems and crises in the world. And then at the same time, they are providing aid. So, you know, somehow there's a contradiction in that. Um, I would say if the donors are really... Um, Maybe in the final uh, step, Smutri, also because I forgot to introduce this to the reader, you also brought an image. Yes. Because, because I think some of the subjects you are introducing will also be discussed. Yes. If you would go to the final step. Yeah. So, so in a way, you know, th there's, there's a lot that can be done by, mm -hmm. by the donors uh, mm -hmm. in the way their own attitudes and behaviors are as, as an aid administration. Mm -hmm. And all individuals, right, can also help, have a say in this. And we need to exercise that power, <laughs> right? Exercise your power positively to influence that. I will stop at that because I think the image is going to say a lot. Uh, would you like to share the image right now? Yes, please. Okay. So this is, this is my uh, image. And um, in a way, I think uh, it might look a bit shocking, but for me, this is really to, and might bring some discomfort, but I hope you are dis uh, you know, uncomfortable <laughs> because this is how the system is working at the moment, right? The way the aid is flowing to, to, to the countries and who's actually, how much actually is being um, given and how it's given. And I think that that first image of the tap is really showing that. And the second image is, say, is really showing the inequity in the system. Um, and the third one is really showing actually, you know, how we are doing things a bit blindly because we are 
really uh, serving and actually providing more and more resources to the, to, to the ones who already have a lot of resources, but the ones who are really uh-huh. carrying the burden, right? The local actors are really the heart, arms and legs of the system are not getting the funding and the resources and the support that's required. We talk about equity and that's why the lady has the, you know, the, the um, symbol there. But actually, how are we exercising that? How are we really, truly exercising equity and justice and solidarity? So I'm going to leave you with that. Yeah, that's a brilliant image. I saw someone in the chat asking whether we can share the image. We always try to include these images in the articles, also in the final booklet. Thank you very much, Smruti, for sharing this with us. I am now excited to introduce the next speaker, Professor Dirkian Koch, who is a Chief Science Officer at the Netherlands Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but also a Special Professor of International Trade and Development Cooperation at the Radboud University in Nijmegen. He has a experience as a diplomat in the Congo where I was born, uh, where he also was a professor at the University, Catholic University of Kinshasa. And he was among other regional director for uh, Search for Common Ground in that country and in Kenya. Um, he's uh, an expert on the issues that we are discussing, also including policy coherence, one of the subjects just raised by uh, Smuti. Sm- uh, sorry, uh, Smuruti. Welcome. Uh, uh, Professor Dirkian Koch. Hi, yeah, and thank you so much uh, for the invitation. I really appreciate uh, being here. And uh, in the next 10 minutes, I will share a bit my personal experiences in the field of uh, decolonizing development and of what I think uh, should happen. You mentioned that I work for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs as well. What I'm going to say is not yet officially the standpoint of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but uh, maybe it, it will become, who knows? <laughs> uh, so um, I'm speaking here more in a personal um, capacity. So so good to see many uh, familiar faces, but also a lot of new people joining debate. And uh, um, I would like to share with, I would like to take you 10 years back, actually 10 years ago, I think I was just 30. And uh, I never had uh, a management position before in my life, actually. But I could become the country director in the Democratic Republic of the Congo for a large international peace building organization. And I think probably I wouldn't have gotten that job if I hadn't been white. Uh, We had about 100 staff members of which I think 95% was black and 5% was white. And the white people were mostly the heads of the officers. Uh, And the organization was doing very important stuff. You know, uh, the local staff provided human rights training for the Congolese army, which was really needed. But there were also serious issues of corruption within our organization. And the organization was failing audits and donors were demanding their funds back. And uh, actually the staff members were uh, were at risk of losing their jobs. So one of the key tasks of me as the new director there was to win the trust back of the donors. And they already referred to the issue of trust. And um, I just needed to make sure that the audits would be clean again and the contract with the donors could be signed again and the money could flow. Uh, well, I think I did what was expected. You know, we, I detected uh, with the team the culprits. We handed the colleagues over to the police. I think it was about five people who we had to hand over. 
And um, when the donors saw my white face, especially since I spoke their language, I saw that their trust improved. Um, so I served a purpose, you know, the funding could continue. And to me, it was an example um, that mindsets are still full of prejudices in the, uh, in the sector, as uh, Shruti already explained. So right now I'm kind of reflecting, you know, uh, did I contribute to reducing the corruption by handing over the people to the police? Or did I actually contribute to increasing corruption because I had privilege, like access to a nice car, to a house. Um, we kind of introduced more inequality in the system and, uh, and the scheming that came with it. So uh, yeah, I don't have an answer to the question. Well, enough talk about my experiences in the colonial and colonization of aid, but uh, I would like to take up um, the challenge that uh, Thea put us in front is, are the donors, are they actually following or leading the debate? And I think the donors are too much following the debate instead of leading it. Mm -hmm. And I would come with three examples where I think the rules and the regulations uh, of the donors need to be strengthened so that they will become leaders in a decolonization mm -hmm. debate. That is the supervision uh, uh, policies, so of the supervisory boards, supervisory boards, the advertisement policies, and the HR policies of the donors. So just one step back before we go into the details. Ideally, of course, money is given to the democratically elected governments by the Dutch government, for instance, to support their anti uh, poverty programming. Think about budget support, little strings attached. However, the most neediest people live in the countries with the crappiest forms of governance. So handing over money to the government is not gonna help us that much, especially if we look now at the democracy ratings across the globe, for instance, in Africa, in 26, um, there was only 14 non-free countries. And now in 2021, there's already 20 non-free countries in Africa alone. So if we hand over the money to those governments, there's no accountability to make sure that it actually serves the population. So a parallel system needs to be built. It's there for a reason, right? But the question is, is this aid apparatus that we have built on the side, this parallel system, is this delivering more accountability to the populations in the South? Well, I think not enough. And I think uh, we need to change the practices. Of course, mindsets are important, but I think mindset sometimes also follows practices. But we need mm -hmm. to avoid uh, trapping into the trap of what uh, one of the articles by Smruti, sorry, I'm still working on your uh, uh, first name, is what we call recreational anti-racism. That we say, oh, let me talk a lot about it, but we don't make any changes in the redistribution of power and of rules. So um, let's avoid that by changing three. Uh, one is this with respect to diversity in supervision boards. Um, that's the, and I, let me start with that one because I feel strongly about it. I think uh, 14 years ago, I was doing my PhD research and I had a lot of time to analyze together with um, researchers uh, the composition of the boards of international NGOs. You know, mm -hmm. who are their supervisors? And we looked at the, their websites, we found hundreds, uh, we followed 100 organizations and we found that only 6% of their board members was non-white. 
So 94% white people. So very few representatives for, uh, for countries for whom these organizations are supposed to be working. Well, to prepare for this session, I couldn't go to all those 100 websites back again, but if you just take a brief snapshot and you can look at your own organization, I think there has been a little change, but there's not that much change. And uh, this is not progressing. I do blame the donors for that because they have never asked for that in all their guidelines. Uh, but I think also all of us has a, have a role to play. I know that Kuno is one of the hosts. So Kuno, why don't we start a research into this and start making a ranking, a table of uh, which INGO is doing best in this respect? A race to the top. So the second element in which I think the donors have been lazy uh, relates to advertisements of their grantees. We still see organizations that are disempowering black people by stereotyping uh, them as vulnerable and weak. Um, people uh, of color yeah, uh, are often portrayed in negative ways. Donors have left the NGOs to auto-regulate themselves in this respect. And in my humble opinion, NGOs are just as good in self-regulation as the business sector, which is not good in my view. So I'm glad that the portals, at least you have guidelines in which uh, you have a code of conduct eh, in which you say that organizations should treat recipients, and that's the word you use, with respect. Um, but if the members don't stick uh, to these, uh, this code of conduct, little action seems to be taken. Uh, donors should, in my view, not just ask that their logos are nicely printed on all the material, but should also <laughs> demand that all advertisements by their grantees are not contributing to the white savior syndrome. And Partos, I know you're here. Uh, I think you should toughen your guidelines in this respect too. Well, the last element I would like to highlight relates to the personnel policies. Many donors uh, including the Dutch government, we are not really checking the senior staff in field offices and whether they are people of color or if they are white. I'd remember I could just become a country director without any management experience. Uh, the donor doesn't really yeah, give a premium to those organizations which accompany their local staff over the years to let them take increasing levels of responsibility. No, what matters to the donors now is that the audit is clean, basically. The governments are agnostic if your working language, for instance, in, in your headquarters is an inclusive language or it's exclusive. Yeah, you, you insist on it being Dutch, even though you know that many people cannot participate. So uh, I think that uh, around the table here, there's quite some progressive NGOs. So and I know you lobby the government a lot, uh, especially around the funding schemes. So why don't you lobby them also in this respect that actually empowering practices with respect to personnel are rewarded in the next subsidy scheme. Okay, well, let me conclude by a statement and maybe not everybody around the table will be very happy. Uh, I won't be, uh, I won't make, it won't make me maybe very popular, but often I hear NGOs say, ah, oh, uh, we need to, or donors need to cherish our, cherish our autonomy. And they claim that donors impose many rules and regulations and that these rules and regulations thwart their progressive ambitions. So the idea is that if they would just be left alone, then they would be very progressive. Well, let me say that with respect to decolonizing development, donors have, in my view, not imposed enough rules. They have left the NGOs free to organize their own supervision boards, their advertisement and personnel policies. 
the donors were colorblind in this respect. Well, I think this has contributed to a regressive system in which the white gaze still prevails. Um, yeah, let's face it, NGOs operate in a market environment created by those donors. If donors don't put a premium in this market on empowering people of color, this won't happen or way too slowly in my view. Donors have uh, enabled the system to grow the way it has become. Now they have the responsibility to change it, I agree. Doing nothing will lead to an entrenchment of the current system. Yet we all have a role to play, whether you are with Kuno, or with Partos, or just an individual researcher or an NGO, I think only together we can break the system. Thank you.